29. Unlike every other book of the Bible, the Psalms are a collection gathered over time. Under God's control, the individual songs or poems were placed in the order that we have them today. Psalm 3 and 4 are a striking pair from a number of vantage points. First of all, they come after the certainties of Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 is clear. The man or woman who obeys God will be blessed like a tree beside waters. Psalm 2 is equally clear and certain. History belongs to the Messiah who will reign despite the raging nations. Together, these two psalms that form the introduction to this collection, Psalms 1 and 2, cover all the major themes of the Old Testament, wisdom and law, kingdom and salvation. They picture all of life and all of history moving in a very clear direction. God wins and his people are blessed in the end. But stepping out of that introduction, that entry to the Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, we move into Psalm 3 and 4, and it's like stepping out of a cathedral and into a busy, dirty street. Psalm 3 verse 1 says, O Lord, how many are my foes, my enemies. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The psalm has a desperate feel. The psalmist is hunted and taunted. In fact, Psalm 3 is David's psalm at the worst moment of his life. The rebellion of Absalom, his son, wounded him deeply and personally. Absalom stole the hearts of his friends, divided his family, and divided his nation. It was so personal that Absalom actually sexually abused David's wives in a tent in Jerusalem that he had set up. Can you feel that fall? The certainty of singing the glories of Psalm 1 and 2. Then the fall into the sewer of life that is Psalm 3. Enemies, danger, defeat, struggle. In the middle of that wonderful psalm, Psalm 3, in verse 5, there is a turning point, though. David moves from struggle to trusting God with these words. Verse 5 of Psalm 3. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That critical middle line in the song marks Psalm 3 as a morning psalm. David has gone to bed in a crisis, and he wakes up because the Lord's mercies are new every day. Now can you understand why the Lord placed Psalm 4 next to Psalm 3? Psalm 4, our psalm tonight, as some of you might recall, is an evening psalm. Commentators have long noted that Psalm 3 and 4 very much go together and have many words in Hebrew in common. They are one long day in the life of a believer living in a fallen and broken world. Instead of easy victory, David finds himself on the run from his own son, 
He has every promise you can think of. He is the Lord's anointed. And yet, how can this be? How can we be people today who are going to inherit the earth and at the same time be people who struggle every day with fear, anger, and depression? Psalm 4 shows us that we can be at peace and sleep when we remember the Lord our God, when we remember who our God is for us and how good he is in himself. Then and only then we can sleep in the boat during any storm. Would you please stand now as we read this wonderful psalm together, Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we look tonight to your son, our sweet psalm singer. We look to his life, to the way he fulfilled every psalm and sang them throughout his life and passion. And we pray now that from his spirit, the spirit that he gives, our minds and hearts would be open to hear his songs and to understand them, that we might be conformed and changed into his image. Father, we pray that you would do this work in our midst tonight, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last time, you will recall, I hope, that we looked together at verse 1 of this psalm. Normally, we study more than one verse at a time. But I wanted to slow us down that day and ask us to really think about what it means to call God my righteousness. Most of us are probably uncomfortable with a phrase like that, and for good reason. We don't want to suggest for even one moment that our own personal righteousness can merit or force God to favor us. We also don't want to set ourselves up over our neighbors as if we were paragons of virtue. But as we saw last time, that is not what God of my righteousness means in verse 1. What it actually means is that God will uphold, God will vindicate me in a particular matter in which I am innocent. For us as Christians, this means that God will one day vindicate our faith. In other words, the many people who thought we were crazy for attending church, trusting God or following his word, those people who slandered us will be compelled to face the truth. God will uphold the church's sacred cause, which is Christ and the gospel. As we noted that night, 
God will not be vindicating a particular political party or my hobby horse or theological position. Rather, the day of Christ's coming will vindicate the believer in Christ. God upholds our righteous cause. We also took verse 1 and we put it into the mouths, not just our mouths, but into the mouths of David and Jesus. As Jewish kings, this term had special meaning for David and Jesus. Both men were the Lord's anointed. And so the slander against them was not just sinful, it was also treasonous. The opponents were actually setting themselves up against God. Here we should think of the words of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against God and against his anointed? As I've mentioned on several occasions, the Psalms are fulfilled when Jesus sings them. When we hear them on Jesus' lips, more on this at the end of the sermon. But for now, let's look at the rest of the psalm. Having opened with his trust in God as the one upholding his righteous cause, David now turns to the nation and advises them. If the context here is Absalom's rebellion, and I, I believe that it is, you can kind of imagine the scene, can't you? The nation is being ripped apart. Some of the old guard are faithful to David. They remember the slaying of Goliath. They've seen David's extraordinary power as warrior and poet. But meanwhile, many others see this as an opportunity to get ahead or to settle old grudges. For example, we briefly meet a character in the Old Testament account who was a relative of Saul, the man David replaced who was so thrilled with this rebellion that he followed David's retreat, cursing and mocking him all the way. What happens then in 2 through 8, verses 2 through 8, is really remarkable. In his distress, David turns to his audience, the nation, and instructs them and us through them. You can see this structure in your Bible as the stanzas are marked out in most Bibles with spaces. So in verses 2 and 3, we see David correcting the people. Then in verses 4 through 5, he advises them. And then lastly, in verses 6 through 7, he sets the example for them. As king and the anointed of God, David has this duty in a special way. But all of us at some level are called to teach or disciple someone. And these three components must be a part of teaching, always. Correction, advice, and illustration. So first of all, see how David corrects the people, the nation, in verses 2 and 3. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In verse 1, David is, we might say, kneeling at his bed, committing his cause to God in verse 1. Beginning with verse 2, though, he rises, as it were, and faces the camera. We, that's the way we put it today. He faces the nation, and he begins to instruct them. Specifically, in these verses, he wants to rebuke the nobility of the nation. If you're using any kind of study Bible tonight, you will probably see a note or a little mark 
beside verse 2 that tells you that the word translated there, men, is probably better understood as men of distinction or men of nobility. David here, David here uses a Hebrew phrase that literally is translated sons of men, but the ESV uh, leaves that literal and just says men, but it's everywhere in the Hebrew Bible it means men of nobility. He's speaking especially to the princes of the people. Now notice that these uh, leaders of the nation are involved, David says, in two hopeless causes. First, they are seeking to discredit and slander David. And so David says, how long, men of rank, shall my honor be turned to shame? Because this psalm is so closely tied to Psalm 3, it makes perfect sense here to think of the rebellion under David's wayward son, Absalom. The Bible tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom persuaded many that David's time was up and that his kingdom was not aligned with God or the interests of God's people. After all, David had been through the sleepless nights dodging Saul, the battles against Goliath and others. How it must have hurt him to hear such slanders. As a son, Absalom also had access to lots of private information. Maybe he even knew something of David's sin with Bathsheba. Whatever the details, the slander was painful. We might not be kings tonight, but we can appreciate David's pain here and join in with his song. In many ways, in fact, with the dawn of social media, the opportunity for slander and for false allegations has never been greater one of the great evils of social media, and let me just say I know there is good to it too, but one of the great evils of social media is that it gives so many unworthy people a public platform. People who are really themselves lost and confused can use it to mislead others, and they do. Others who are just resentful or even evil can use it in the same way. It gives everyone a pulpit. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not always sure I should have a pulpit either when I look at my own life. But at least in my case, my pulpit comes with lots of accountability. So we can appreciate some of what David is feeling in our own day. He wants to ask these people, how long will you go on with this hopeless attempt to disgrace me? But there is a second and even more serious rebuke here in these verses, David goes on to say, verse 3, How long will you love, adore, vain words, and seek after lies? Now, on one level, the vain words or empty words are a reference to the slanderous remarks of David's enemies. But the language here is the language we find again and again in the Old Testament to refer to idolatry. As the Lord's anointed, David is saying... That slander is more than slander in his case. It is idolatry. Just as he said in Psalm 2, their raging against God's anointed is not about David ultimately. It is about God. David not, did not come to the throne through an ad campaign 
or ballot manipulation. His life and kingship were profoundly miraculous. He was anointed by the greatest prophet of the age, the prophet Samuel. Don't miss this. These slanderers thought they were involved in politics, regime change. But in reality, they were involved in idolatry. They weren't just overthrowing a king. They were trying to overthrow God himself. The idea that God was going to give his kingdom to Absalom or to someone else was a direct assault on God's promises and activities. So you see, they seek after a lie, a vain thing, a useless thing. And that's why David can say in verse 3, Don't you know, God has set apart the righteous for himself. This is covenantal language. It doesn't mean someone who is perfectly sinless, but rather the person who is an authentic covenant with God. This is the idea behind our word holy, not perfect, but rather someone who's been set apart by God. David delights and rests in that. He had received the promise of eternal kingship. So these recent attempts to overthrow his kingdom were bound to fail. They were vain. They were empty. When David used these words, he knew where he was getting them from. In English, we can miss this, although it's there in English too. But these words are the same words used by Moses to describe the difference God made between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Remember in Exodus how the plagues would descend on the land of Egypt but leave the Israelites completely untouched. Why? Because the Lord has set apart his people and he hears them. David then rebukes the nation for their obstinance and their stupidity and their forgetfulness of God's promises. He says, don't you know our God by now? Now, if David could have this confidence, think how much more emphatically Jesus could sing this psalm. Whatever the appearance in our country at this moment or on the morning of his trial and crucifixion, whatever things look like, no matter how bad things looked, Jesus has always known that God the Father had set aside the covenant keeper for himself. Everyone likes to think they are part of a movement that will last we talk about being part of the change or ending poverty in this generation, or we speak of the inevitable progress of the times. Some of these changes are good, some are bad, but they all miss the point. Do you really think that the future belongs to sinful mankind? Do you really think, do the people leading the movements today, do they really think that God will give the kingdoms of this world to the oligarchs of our society? Do you think the LGBTQ movement is going to inherit the earth and the fullness thereof? Will God rip the kingdom from his beloved son, his resurrected son, and grant it to us or them or any other political social movement? When Jesus sings these verses, they are fulfilled. So Jesus can say in verse 3, the Lord hears when I call him. As we saw this morning, 
Jesus has the ear of the Father. What then is the hope of all these counter-movements? David advises even those in his own day, kiss the son then, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The hope of the right and the left and the center and all the other movements, the only hope is surrender because God has set apart his anointed and his anointed is singing this psalm and no one can take it out of his mouth. After this strong word of rebuke, you'll see second, the second stanza in verses 4 and 5. David now turns, like any good teacher, to instill truth, to give advice. He's driven out the bad. Now he will plant good seeds. Look at the verses here and the advice he gives. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Verse 4, and some of you will have this note as well, can be translated, tremble, tremble in fear of God and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts. The word for tremble and anger in Hebrew are the same word. But either way, the point is the same. David is genuinely concerned for what his kinsmen may do with this situation. Everybody's on edge. Everyone is angry. David's supporters and his detractors may be, attempted, may be tempted to adopt an end justifies the means kind of mentality. In other words, everyone in the nation is worried and angry at this moment. A bad leader, and we've seen some of these, a bad leader would say, if you're on my side, do anything it takes to get me back in power. Instead, David counsels the whole nation to stop and think. As if David is saying, look, you may be dissatisfied with your portion, be angry with my reign, but think carefully. Stop reacting and start thinking. Ponder in your hearts and don't lash out sinfully. The Apostle Paul quotes this, as many of you know, in Ephesians 4, verse 26, where the believer... The Christian is to be aware, to beware of anger and the foothold it can get in our lives and the opening it gives to the devil. Anger is such a powerful force in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves. So many of the decisions we make and words we say are rooted in anger. We lash out without thinking. We make impulsive decisions. We burn bridges. Humans have always been this way. So we have an ancient proverb found in other writings and in the Bible that says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't live and act and speak out of your anger. Consider. Do you see what David is doing here? As David is about to lay down and sleep in peace, he imagines the nation full of anger and confusion on their beds and so at this critical moment in the life of the nation, he calls on them to stop, think, ponder, and pray. Then get up in the morning and do what? He goes on. Morning in David's mind, of course, is the time of sacrifice. So verse 5 says, get up, ponder, then get up and go offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Remember David's rebuke in verses 2 and 3. They are chasing after vanity. 
another word for idolatry. And turning against David, they are chasing a lie, a dream. The way back is to stop raging and ponder and then return to faithful humility to the Lord. Right sacrifices. We would say today, right worship Our worship is worship according to God's word. And David says, that's what you need right now in your chaos of your life. You need right worship and pondering, thinking about what you're doing. Today, we might advise someone, stop lashing out, go home and pray. Pray about this and then get out God's word and obey it. I think the greatest example of this comes to us in the Gospels at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. You will remember that Pilate tried to release Jesus, but the people said in their anger and in their haste, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Now think about that. That is a terrible curse. Who even came up with something like that? No matter how right I might think I am about something, I would never say that. That is, if I was thinking, if I was pondering, if I was submitting, that's where raging and not offering true worship to God leads. And it's probably the greatest and most horrific example we have in Scripture. So he corrects them, admonishes them. He advises them, instead of this, do this. And then lastly, he does what all good teachers do. He has an illustration in his own life. Look at verses 6 through 7. Here's his example. There are many, especially at this time of unrest, who are saying, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Opening words are timeless. There are many who are saying, who will give me the best deal? Many people tragically live their lives with that as their... But here in Psalm 4, the context is almost certainly a civil war in Israel. It's not hard to imagine people on both sides doing the math. Will it work out better to remain faithful to David or to follow the new king, Absalom? Everyone, quite naturally, is looking out for their advantage and quite sinfully. And you might remember that was Absalom's strategy. He won the hearts of the people by giving them the goodies, giving them what they wanted. It's often the way our own politicians approach us. Behind this whole rebellion is not some noble belief in God's will. Instead, as David knows, it's all about anger and greed people who want revenge on the current administration and people who hope to do better with a new administration. But once again, even if you remove this particular background, the picture is the same. Who will show us some good? This really common attitude moves David in the spirit to add some of the most beautiful words in scripture. When facing this ugly attitude of what's in my best interest, David says this in the spirit, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Have mercy, he's saying, on this nation of greedy, angry people. 
Lift up the light of your, that's what we need. You have put more joy in my heart, I know this, than they have when the grain and wine is running over. Just as I do with you, I'll do in a few moments. These words are the words of the priestly benediction. David has found in that benediction that he hears probably every week or maybe even multiple times a week. He's found in those words, the Lord lift up his face or the Lord make his face shine upon you. He's found in those simple words of the priests, the benediction, the reality of what he really wants in life. And now he calls that blessing down on all of the nation, on all his people. Instead of a bribe, instead of a kickback, David asks God to remember the priest's benediction and reunite the people of God during this civil war. And then he gives his own testimony, and this is striking. He says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Here's what he is saying. When everything is going right for them, when the world is at its best, when life is clicking on all cylinders, money is pouring in on their best day, they don't have the joy I have in my heart, in my God, on the worst day of my life. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony? They've given themselves, like so many people in our culture, they have given themselves over to pursue pleasure. Who will show us any good? And yet at the end of the day, when everything is given, they cannot come close to the simple pleasure David has in his almighty God. If you really want to understand our moment in history, in this country, understand this verse. We are a nation of the miserably rich. We work, we slave, we make it, we get it, and then we are miserable. And there's not enough medication and alcohol to make it right. The simple believer on the worst day has more joy than the unbeliever on the best day of his life. Verse 8 then ends the psalm, and it's really the amen to the psalm. David writes, In peace then, because of all this, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's a striking ending. The world's on fire. The nation is torn apart. His family is divided. His son is wayward. And David says, I will sleep tonight. Because my safety was never about the nation or my family. My safety and my joy and my peace are in my Savior. David will not spend the night thrashing in anger upon his bed. He will not spend his nights or his days calculating what might be in his best interests in every situation. He will not use his platform to slander others or improve his own ratings. No, don't you see? He has been satisfied. Satisfied in God and in who God is for him in Christ. And now all that is left is sleep. What about you? You know, very few people die instantly. Our medical people will tell you this. We have many medical people ask them. Most of us will have a deathbed. 
even if it's just 20 minutes in our own bed, a major heart attack or something, but there, there's almost always a deathbed. What will comfort you in that ultimate moment of rest? As you say for the last time in your life, now I lay me down to rest. How will you finish that poem? I personally think the absolute best use of this last verse is for that moment, for that moment, as you see that moment approaching. These words speak powerfully to that moment, and I hope you will memorize them for your death. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But these words are for living as well, not just for dying. We face slander. It's a very real and growing problem in our day. We also see a world torn apart by self-interest. Can you find in your pastor's benediction, morning and evening, can you find what they are really looking for? Or are you just going to go around trying to get one more thrill, one more scrap of fleeting happiness? This is a psalm that sings of our faith, our struggle, and our moment. But more than anything else, don't miss this. Jesus, our anointed one, fulfilled this psalm. First, when he fell asleep in a boat during a raging storm. Was it this psalm, perhaps, that he was reciting as he went to sleep that day? We know he was a ferocious psalm singer. The psalms were on his lips throughout his passion. This psalm was perfectly manifest in his perfect life. But even more so, this psalm is the psalm of his death. Remember what the scriptures say. He laid down his life. He more than anyone else, then or now, he died in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. He died knowing that God, his righteousness, would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. This was the very attitude of Christ as he approached his own death. It is this psalm that I believe is echoed down to us in the New Testament through the book of Philippians when Paul writes these wonderful words. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not just when the wine and the grain are coming in, right? And he says, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, not your anger, but your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for these words of comfort and encouragement. We rejoice as we hear them in David's mouth. We rejoice as we see them manifested in our own, and we rejoice with even greater joy as we see them in the mouth and life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us tonight to hear him by faith through his word, singing these words. And then, Father, by your Holy Spirit, sing them right into our lives. For we pray and ask it in his most holy name. Amen.